welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on Books About Place at ryanmurdoch.com. Today I'm speaking with Dervla Murphy. She's been described as the first lady of Irish cycling and as a travel legend. Uh, she's Ireland's most prolific travel writer, and for five decades she's traveled the world mostly alone and mostly on foot. I'm sure she needs no introduction, but for those who are not familiar with her work, she was an only child who grew up in a small village in Southern Ireland. Um, and she spent much of her early years looking after her mother who was badly crippled with rheumatoid arthritis. On her 10th birthday, she was given a bicycle and an atlas. And she began to do increasingly long cycling trips around her local area. And then one day while leafing through the atlas, she realized that if she could just get across the English Channel to Europe, and if she just kept pedaling, she could cycle all the way to India. More than two decades later, after her mother died, that's exactly what she did. A chance meeting on the road led to her journals from that trip being published by John Murray, and the resulting book, Full Tilt, became a bit of a legend. And over 20 books followed. She, she's done journeys to Peru, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, Africa, India, uh, Israel and Palestine more recently. And earlier this year, she won the Edward Stanford Award for Outstanding Contribution to Travel Writing. I didn't think Dervla gave interviews anymore, but her publisher, Elin Books, reached out to me and suggested we have a conversation for her 90th birthday. Uh, Elin's been a huge supporter of this podcast right from the beginning, and I'd really like to thank everyone there, especially, especially Steph, for helping to set this conversation up. We had a thoroughly enjoyable chat about the erosion of traditional cultures, travel in the pre-internet age, and the general state of the world. I hope you like it. Hello. Hi, good morning, Dervla. It's Ryan Murdoch calling from the Personal Landscapes podcast. Good morning. Where are you calling from? Well, I'm in Berlin at the moment. Oh, Berlin. But you're Canadian, I think Steph told me originally. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm originally from Canada. Yeah. Thanks very much for taking the, the time to talk to me. It's very kind of you. Oh, a pleasure. So tell me about your work. What do you do? I, I'm a writer. Um, I, I write for a, a travel magazine in Canada. and. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I write some journalistic pieces for um, a newspaper in Malta as well. And, and I do this podcast where I talk to um, writers that I really like about, about their work. So you travel around quite a bit? Uh, not, not in the last couple of years. Well, no. no nobody went anywhere much. <laughs> so how is it in Germany now? Because I hear... Certain uh, alarming reports that things may be may get much tougher in Germany. I mean, more lockdowns. Is that true? I don't know what to what to think. Like they they talk about it, and but the the vaccination rates are fairly low here, so I, I don't think they'll ever escape the situation with thirty um, percent of people unvaccinated. But at the same time, they don't seem uh, willing to go on with uh, with normal life. Very strange, isn't it? How different human beings react differently to the challenge of it all. 
Well, it, it seems like we're we're so shielded from actual life and so shielded from whether our own mortality or our own physical frailties <laughs> that we, we try to hide it away, I think. And we live in this culture of complete safetyism. True. Very true. I mean, it's, it's very different from, from when you started traveling, right? This, this, um, this sort of mindset. Otherwise, nobody would go anywhere. Quite so. And there's so much hypocrisy involved in it all. National leaders giving directions like Johnson in Britain, giving the public directions, and then allowing his own crowd to defy all the advice. No, I saw the same thing in Canada as well. You you had these um, liberal cabinet ministers telling people, you know, you can't travel anywhere, no vacations this winter, and then they're caught going to the Caribbean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's, there's so much hypocrisy involved, but there's also this this um, risk aversion. I find this this idea that society should protect us all from every possible risk, and uh-huh. no risk is tolerable at the moment. And of course, I find the the EU and all its health and safety regulations have made people much more, certainly in our EU part of the world, made people much more twitchy in this, about everything. It's interesting in Germany as well that they, the risk aversion seems very high. Like they, they really like predictability, and there's, there's like 83 different types of insurance that people have. To protect them from any possible. <laughs> I've never bought insurance for anything in my life. No, I'm, I'm not keen on it either. I mean, you pay for, you pay for it uh, so many times in advance that you might as well just pay the price when the time comes. It's much cheaper. Oh, yeah, that's what I've always felt. That's how it's worked out for me. I mean, if I've needed uh, expensive medical care. Then I pay for it on the spot. You traveled in in Germany in your in your early days, didn't you? Oh, in, in very early days, yes. But I mean, I wouldn't. I'm sure I wouldn't recognize the country now. In in Wheels Within Wheels, you wrote that uh, on those early continental trips, you you felt a natural affinity for for the Spanish people, but you didn't really connect to that in Germany. Why why do you think that was? I'm not sure. Well, you see, that was really my first trip to the continent. I mean, I was. Very green, very, you know, not 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 yet, I suppose, capable of adapting to a new country when I've well, a new continent when I found myself there. That particular trip on my bike, when Cologne was, there was very little left of it apart from the cathedral. That was an extraordinary memory I'll never forget. I've seen photos of that with the whole city bombed flat and only the cathedral standing. Yes. Yeah, extraordinary. And you still see uh, bombs dug up in, in Berlin quite regularly when they're, when they're working on new buildings, and there are still large areas of the city that, that have gaps from that time or from the Cold War time. But what infuriates me, I mean, back to hypocrisy, that dreadful Australian man, what's his name, the Australian Prime Minister, how dare, how dare he, you know, criticise the Chinese when you think of uh, how the Australian government treated migrants, imprisoning them 
on these horrible islands. I would think, I've no doubt the, the Uyghur are treated badly by the Chinese, but I would bet they're not treated as badly as those migrants, thousands of them, were treated by the Australian state. There seemed to be a policy of just interning people on islands before they even even reached uh, Australia. That, that was the policy, exactly, not let them reach, yes, that was it. I saw something similar in Malta in in more recent years, especially with the so many migrant arrivals. They've begun they've begun just not answering the calls, the distress calls, or um, intercepting them at sea. And they've there was a, a shady character in Malta who who's made a deal with the Libyans to to have the Libyan Coast Guard pick these people up and re- return them. It's really horrible. And yet we will continue to proclaim that we are the civilized people. Yeah, it's very sad. I wonder, so many people want to come here, but then I think they underestimate how difficult it is to um, to integrate into some of these cultures. Like in, in Germany, it's very difficult to learn the language, and I find it's it's uh, very difficult to fit in or be accepted unless you kind of fully assimilate to, uh, to to the German way of life. And at the same time, it's it's not made very easy for people. Yes. Well, how are you getting on with the German language? Are you fairly fluent now? Oh, no, I'm hopeless. I can order beer. Well, that's, for me, that's the essential. Yeah, well, I can count to, uh, I can count to three, but not beyond. So if I need more, th- more than three beers, I have to go back twice. <laughs> that's one thing, the beer here is very good, so I have no complaints there. Yes. <laughs> yes, well, I've got a granddaughter now who has settled in Germany. Oh, in, okay. Uh, can never remember the name of the little city. My memory for names has gone completely, which is very, very inhibiting. It means you can't really talk in public anymore when you can't remember any name. Yes, yeah, that's difficult. What, what about, do you find memories for, for older things are, are more vivid or for more recent things? Oh, um, older things. Really, yeah. And what do you look back on most? If you had such an an amazing lifetime of of journeys to so many different places, are there are there memories that particularly stand out that you like to go back to? Well, I suppose there are so many places where I couldn't go back to for military political reasons. Mm. I mean, you wouldn't. Um, you wouldn't go back now to Ethiopia, Afghanistan. Uh, even now, the trouble that has started up in Madagascar. So many of my favorite places absolutely bedeviled by militarism since my visits there. It really speaks to the um, the importance of going to a place while while the opportunity exists, you know, not putting it off because so many of these places change yes. and then, you know, that window closes and there's never a chance to go back. Exactly. So how did you find things that you mentioned Malta? Hmm. That seems to be a very strange country when it comes to the EU because I understand that a lot of people can buy Maltese passports I mean, Saudis and such like people, all billionaires. Yeah, I saw it, I saw it change quite a lot when I moved there. I moved there in um, 
I think 2011, just never been there before. I wanted to live in a in a place that I knew nothing about and maybe write something about this culture. And uh, I knew nothing except for you know stories of the nights. But uh, at, during the time we lived there, there was uh, an election, and this this uh, labor leader got back in. They they had trouble in the 80s with the really repressive governments and a lot of political violence. And the this party was reelected finally after all these years. And and it, it was like a wholesale takeover of the place by a by a kleptocracy. Just became more and more and more corrupt while we were there to the point where they they uh, killed a journalist who who was reporting on all this stuff. Oh, well, I remember that. Yes, I saw quite a bit about that on Al Jazeera, and she seemed to be such a wonderful woman. Yeah, she was very controversial. I mean, I'm sure she was. Yes. Everybody read her, and and I'd written for her website a couple of times. I, I didn't know her personally, but we corresponded um, by email during that last year. Yes. So that's that's why I've continued to write about Malta. You know, she didn't spare the corrupt leaders. I gather. Oh no, she she was uh, scathing. Her writing was scathing. Her investigative journalism was incredible. She really had a keen eye, and she knew everything that was going on, which which was the problem. Mm-hmm. But yes, it seems it's a very it's a very strange place, a, quite an unrepentantly corrupt place at the moment, and I, I don't see much hope that it'll get any better. And her son, I remember appearing at the time, shortly after her death. I mean, he seemed rather, uh, you know, very very dignified and very shrewd in his comments. Did you ever come across him? No, I've corresponded with him a few times by email, but uh, I never met him when I was on the island. No. They, the, all three sons took up this um, this case full time yes. after she was killed, and they've they've done so much to bring awareness to what's going on. It's been it's been the awareness in the European Union that is that is forcing change on Malta because it's certainly not happening internally. Well, the European Union has its own share of corruption. How could it not with such a such a massive bureaucracy? Exactly. Such a strange homogenization. I mean, this is this is one of the things that really stood out for me from. From all of your um, earlier writing, especially this, the, the theme of the loss of traditional cultures. Oh yes, so sad. Yeah, when I when I hear, as one so frequently does nowadays, all these deeply ignorant comments about Afghanistan and mm. its various regional traditions and all the rest of it and describing it as one of the poorest, or always one of the poorest countries on Earth. When that is so, I mean, it's a completely false depiction of the country. Undeveloped, yes. In our terms, of course, it was totally undeveloped. They didn't see its hard road, the length and breadth of Afghanistan. But being undeveloped and being primitive, uh, are two different things. I mean, it was it was it had a thriving economy then with its sales of well, mainly dried and and fresh fruits to both Iran and Afghan and uh, Pakistan, and of course, no, the the heroin trade had not yet stopped, cultivation and trade 
And that is at its beginning, very encouraged, of course, by the CIA, who are busy running their own heroin uh, trade in, in Vietnam. And, and indeed in Laos, where I saw a few of the, the, the actual factories where they made heroin, whatever the phrase, the correct word is. Well, this is what I think is so so um, important about uh, books like yours as well, because it paints a picture of a of a different time, uh, of a deeply cultured place that yes. that isn't at all what what it's what it's become now. And it's important to be able to look back at that and see that's right what that once was and what it, what it could be again. Exactly. That well, this is something that struck me as well. Like you, you wrote uh, in Ethiopia. You wrote about a village medical officer who was who was sent to a remote region mm-hmm. to run a health center for three years, and his boredom and contempt for his home village and, yeah. and the people and the food he grew up with because because of um, this this corruption by these western western ideals. Or uh, you you said that if I could quote you here, there there has been a sustained and dreadfully successful campaign to make most people dissatisfied with what I would call the normal life, and some would call simple life. Exactly. I mean, the consumer society by now, of course, has taken over to such an extent that really, I think you'd almost say the average Western, if we, by Western we mean sort of European and North American, they're scarcely, they can scarcely imagine what a normal life not dictated to by the corporates and their What's, what's to their advantage? Uh, a normal life such as so many of these countries traditionally lived. I mean, that, that really has been wiped out. It's almost as though we've we've lured people in with this this vision of of what life could be, but it's all materialistic. And in the end, you know, they embrace it and they find it's it's completely shallow. But but it's impossible to go back at that point. That's it. That's it. So I suppose. What we have to do is remember the the good qualities of all the countries that people of my age were fortunate enough to know, like Ethiopia. And, I mean, when you think of it, Ethiopia was an empire under ruled by an emperor when I was there. there. Afghanistan was a kingdom ruled by a king when I was there. I mean, that's, you know, when you, when you live to be 90, you really do have quite a long, a long view in the rear, in the rear mirror. <laughs> it strikes me this, this sort of export of capitalism to these countries and Western material values is something similar in the notion of exporting liberalism, like this idea that yeah. if people become materially prosperous, they'll just embrace our Western liberal way of, way of life and way of seeing the world. And it, it often doesn't fit a traditional culture at all. This notion that every place has to be the same. There's this bullying element in in our domination now. That we do dominate the world, our our Western thinking. Do you think there's sort of a religious element to it? Like there's almost an element of proselytization of having to go and c- preach and convert. Yes, mm. and of course the loss of. I mean that that's something that perhaps. As climate change in, in the centuries immediately ahead, the next two or three centuries, probably 
climate change will force a lot of people to recover their lost skills. Mm. You know, everyday skills. Well, it does bring us closer to the land, I think, and, and realizing what happens if you exploit the land excessively, rather than this sort yeah. of caring for the land and, and living in a sort of symbiosis with it. Yes. Yeah. There's much to learn from these traditional cultures. Another thing that struck me too about your your writing, like in, in Ethiopia, you talked about um, the highland customs and how they weren't empty gestures, but symbols of an essential stability at the heart of society. And, you know, set against the background of our civilization, they they might appear comical or anachronistic, but there they were reminders of of uh, what we've lost maybe. But So you have a deep appreciation for these highland conventions and that... That's right. And yet in... But in the terms of your own society, you'd be considered deeply unconventional. So how do you reconcile that? Well, you don't have to reconcile this. I mean, that's, that's just me. I don't, I don't think there's anything to be reconciled there. I mean, I just live my own, my own style of life, which would be a great deal closer to the Afghans, the Ethiopians, than my neighbor's style of life. Did you ever feel like you were born in the in the wrong place almost, or no, out of place, out of time? Not really, no. I'm, but I I am glad that I was born in time to see to see the end of these traditional. I mean, I'm sorry if it was the end, but I'm glad that I didn't miss actually seeing them in you know in their. Well, if you might say, in their decline, perhaps, but seeing them as they truly were before the West swamped over them. And it really felt like, I mean, like, looking back, it seems to me that just in a few decades, and so much had to do with the development and intrusion of motor traffic, what that means in the way of bringing a certain sort of goods like, you know, cheap, uh, cheap bread, cheap, um, sweet, fizzy drinks, all all that sort of stuff to previously uncontaminated, as I would think, corners of the world. And it, it is actually the the penetration of motor traffic into these areas that caused so much de-skilling and so much so much imagining, fancying that um, you know where where these motor vehicles came from with their loads and apparently. Uh, delectable sweetie stuff. They they came to represent the country they want to go to and where they imagine life would be so much better than in their own in their own world. It strikes me that some of the in the same way that um, many of the things they brought were sort of these foods with empty calories, these these nutritionally void um, foods in the same way a lot of these ideas prove to be yeah, prove to be void you know quite so these cultures yes absolutely yeah 
well, the pace the pace of change must have been quite incredible. Like, could you see it? Could you see these places changing bit by bit? Incredibly, oh, absolutely. I mean, so much so that you know, I knew quite, I knew quite soon there were certain places that altogether, apart from wars having started, places I wouldn't want to go back to because because I would hate to actually witness in action this sort of pollution of what had been sound cultures. I mean, the the state of health of the average rural Afghan, I mean, they were really healthy people. It wasn't until I crossed the Khyber Pass and came down into Pakistan and India that I first saw poverty. And then, of course, as we know, the poverty is very horrendous in the, that subcontinent. That, that sort of poverty simply didn't exist. And everybody had enough to eat, enough to wear, and a solid shelter, and a regular, as I say, a, re- a regular trade with mainly the two, uh, Iran and, and Pakistan, and the, the main neighboring countries. Well, so it's always been such an interesting cultural crossroads as well, one of these zones where yes. where major major cultures meet and, and exchange ideas. But was it always a violent place, even at the time you were traveling there? No, no. no but I, I mean, after all, I was a, you know, a young woman completely alone on a bicycle, cycling all over the country without any problem. And I mean, I suppose... A lot of people would probably find that almost incredible nowadays. The mm. visions we have of, I mean, all the nonsense about being brave for women to travel alone, all that rubbish. Well, it always struck me as an eminently sensible idea. Like when you started these early bicycle journeys and you, you came to the realization that if you just kept going far enough, you could get to this distant place. It's, it's an extension of what you were already doing. Yeah. It's just that most most people don't take the time to go to those distant places. They think, how can you leave your, your life behind? But what you discover is life. Well, that's it, I suppose. Yes. I mean, in, in that sense, I was lucky that, you know, I didn't have to... I didn't have to do anything that would earn me a living. Not because I was rich, but but, but because... I didn't want. I didn't. I didn't want any more than I had. To see what I mean. And I also liked about your your journeys that the the bicycle was kind. Of, it wasn't a slog. It was a means to an end. It was a way to get to these places. Like yeah, exactly. Like the filmmaker uh, Werner Herzog is famous for saying that if you want to understand the world, you must read, 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 and travel on foot. Well, yes. Well, my, I mean, I often have to point this out to interviewers. I had to do that recently, actually. But my main journeys, in fact, have been on foot. Even though the full tilt trip and my first book, you know, attracted so much attention and limelight at the time. And then somehow the label was stuck on me, cyclist. Yes, right, yeah. But then when you think... When you think about it, my longer journeys, 
far more strenuous and far more far more uh, exciting where in Baltistan, in Ethiopia, Madagascar, Cameroon, all on foot with the pack animal, not with the bicycle. So what do you think that traveling on foot gives you that, say, traveling by local bus doesn't? Well, you're, you're just there. You're, you're with the country and the plants and the the, the climate, the, the, the sort of winds, the sun, the whatever it is, and the, and the people. And you meet the people in a completely, on a completely different level when you arrive by foot, or indeed, I mean, my, I mean, I suppose my longest cycle journey was the one from Nairobi to Cape Town and back again. Mm. But the thing about being on foot or, or by bicycle is that, you know, you are acceptable everywhere in, in a way you would not be if you arrived in a motor vehicle. Completely different relationship. I suppose too, like you, though you meet people on local buses, the the landscape sort of unfolds passively as if on a screen you're just watching it out the window. Whereas when you're when you're on foot or on bicycle, it's you know it's it's unfolding in its own time when you're walking. Yes, exactly. And so much so much of travel involves relying on the kindness of strangers as well. That's so many of my best memories come from this. And you've written that most people are most people are helpful and trustworthy. I found I found that to be the case as well. Well, I think every traveller finds that to be the case. And that, that's what makes it so irritating, this, this nonsense about, you know, people being brave to travel on their own. That's bullshit. No, it's essential, I think. Yes. Going alone is essential because when you're, when you're with somebody else, it becomes a different dynamic. It's about you and that person. And, that's and it. People don't want to approach you as much if you're... Completely different. If you're traveling with somebody else, like with my wife or whatever, we... Yeah. People, you don't want to cut in and 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 talk to you, but when you're on your own, you know, yes, you're you're much more approachable. And also, you are letting people know that you depend on them. Hmm. That that it's. Um, I remember noticing that the one occasion when I've travelled with an adult, when my daughter was eighteen, and. It was my very first time, and only time, traveling with an adult. And I noticed that two, the, the, the dynamics when two adults appeared were so different. And I think that was partly because the individual appearing completely alone is saying to the local populations, I trust you. I'm not afraid to come here and depend on you. It sets up a reciprocal relationship right away. Right? Like I've read somewhere that um, yeah. doing somebody a favor can cause resentment, whereas when you ask somebody for help or when you need help, they it sets up a different relationship there. Exactly. Well, one of my favorite books of yours involved traveling with your daughter. It was the um, On a Shoestring to Korg. Our first journey, yes. 
oh, it's, it was such an enjoyable book. It was filled with so much curiosity and joy. And actually, you said at, at one point that it was the only place outside of uh, your little corner of Ireland where you could imagine yourself uh, happy to live permanently. That's right. What was it about that place that was so magical? I really loved Cork. There was a, there was a very special, especially peaceful uh, atmosphere there, and I think it's it's to do with the with the with the local history, you know, and with the fact that the Corky people are. I mean, they are ex- exceptionally agreeable, congenial somehow, and very, very hospitable, of course, but that, that would go for all the Indians. But no, it was... And that is so beautiful, the forest. <laughs> really, really beautiful. Have you been much to India, South India? No, not at all. I'm, I'm ho- I was hoping to go last year when all of this... Um... This lockdown business happened, but your your book really made me interested in the South. I've always been interested in desert places and and sort of the more northern barren places, but this this completely changed my mind. It sounded like such an inviting place. I think you you really would love it. Yes. So, have you ever been tempted by anywhere else like that? Any any place where you felt like, wow, I could really consider living here long term? No. No, no, and I'm very, you know, I am very, very rooted in my own place here. Have you been to Ireland? Yes, just once, yeah. My uh, my grandparents were from Northern Ireland. Really? I travelled to Northern Ireland and to Dun- to Donegal uh-huh. once for a magazine story. Oh, it was wonderful. Well, if you come again, you must come and see me here in Lismore. Oh, I would love to, yeah. I've, I really miss, uh, I miss the landscape and I miss the... Um, there's something different and softer about the light there. But there is. I mean, that's the Atlantic light. I expect to get that in the north of Scotland, too. Hmm. There's a really beautiful passage in Wheels Within Wheels where you wrote about the Blackwater River. Yes. And, and you said it is a good, it's a good thing to have had a river among one's mentors. Its strength develops the body. Its beauty develops the soul. Its agelessness develops the imagination. And its moods teach respect for the mindless power of nature. Well, it's very true. Yeah, I grew up on a, in a small town on the St. Lawrence River, and uh, the river was always kind of my orientation. Yes. You know, yep. it's, towards the river was sort of comforting, and away from the river was more and more unknown territory. Mm-hmm. Going to other places now, I have to um, almost translate directions like a foreign language because the river is always south no matter where it is. Yes. <laughs> so what are your plans now as soon as... We're all free of COVID. Uh, well, to, yeah, to get back to um, to traveling again, we're hoping to go to Istanbul over Christmas. If mm. if they don't if they don't lock us up again, but I'm I'm hoping to do some some long hiking trips. Um, I'd like to go to the Balkans, the northern kind of border region of Albania and um, Kosovo and Macedonia, to do some walking. And I'd love to get to India this year and Central Asia. Mm-hmm. Pretty full year. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be 50 next year, so I have to make, I feel like the, the clock is ticking. At 50 years old, is a bit of a milestone. I suppose it is. <laughs> like, I start to feel the creaks and, you know, the aching knees when it rains and the time always ticking. But... <laughs> no, no, you're not allowed to feel that for another 20 years. <laughs> I hope so. 
Well, there, in terms of traveling as, as you get older, like uh, Paul Theroux wrote about aging in his most recent books. And he said in America, the older kind of dismissed, like stand aside old man, you know, make way for the young. But in more traditional cultures, uh, older people are valued for their wisdom. Oh, gosh, yeah. Did, did you notice a change as, as you traveled, like how you retreated, or did it change how you saw the world? No, I, that's something I've noticed over the last 20 or 25 years. That in the, in the West now, at, at, you know, at, during that, say, past quarter century, the attitudes towards old people have changed or let's say aging people, really have changed completely. Whereas we used to be treated more as elders are treated in traditional societies. There'd be a certain amount of respect for the older person and and consideration. But now I have found within the past couple of decades you, it's you're you're quite aware of it, but this would be in urban areas against urban backgrounds. This wouldn't apply in uh, you know in rural areas, but in urban areas you you feel, you feel a bit of a nuisance. You are made to feel you're 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 in the way, and I've. I mean, I, I marked that, and, you know, uh, I suppose it goes with soul, if you can call it that, of the consumer society. I mean, with the fact that so many of the younger generation are, you know, they're, 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 they're in such a hurry, and they're in a hurry to... Generally speaking, a terrible generalization, but still to allow myself that, generally speaking, to to profit more somehow on something. It's an interesting insight because it's almost as though only the new is valuable now. So anything old is is cast away. There's this yes, constant exactly. thirst and, and hunger for new and things are speeding up so much so much more that it's it just becomes this endless chase for for the next new thing, but it's yeah. You, yeah, you don't stop and, and appreciate what you've what you've got and what you're losing. Exactly. Yeah, I often think about travel in the in the pre-internet age as well, you know, the um cuz like it struck me reading your stuff that your books you you straddle the threshold of an earlier age at the time before motor roads and yes. you know, before Coca-Cola and all this stuff. So you saw where you you saw that major change, but you also saw the same change that I saw travel in the pre-internet age when you weren't connected, like you couldn't be connected in these places. There was no smartphone. That's right, and that's, that's the thing that makes me very sad when I think of my grandchildren. Well, I mean, you could, you know, you could start off on any of the journeys I started off on without any of this equipment. Uh, you know, all the uh, mobile phones and and computers and all the rest of it. I mean, it, you could still do it, but you would be, it would be regarded as, in a way, irresponsible if somebody had to come and rescue you. Or if, not necessarily come and rescue you. I mean, 
in my, you know, travelling through a Balstan or the Andes or whatever, I mean, if some serious accident had happened to, to, to me or Rachel, um, we would have just died there. I mean, there would have been no way you could contact anybody and be rescued. And for, for, for people to put themselves exactly in that position now, would be regarded as irresponsible, whereas to me it was just the natural way of travelling. I think so much of it is an illusion as well, right? Because he, this this idea that the phone is going to save you, I mean, you're, you're so far from help anyway that having a phone with you is just a sort of a false sense of security. Yes, yes. I think the other problem with it as well is that it gives you an outlet for for short attention spans and boredom. Like if you're lonely when you're traveling or you run into difficulties, you can just... Oh, well, I think the, the effect of the... Now you mentioned that was a very interesting program I had. I think it was a couple of years ago, a discussion on the World Service between three... Um, they, they were all women. One was a Canadian... Uh, oh, what do you call it... Neuro, when you specialize in the physical workings of the brain. Yes, the other was a, a child psychiatrist, an American woman. And the third was um, an English woman, a headmistress of a school, a big school in London. And they were discussing, I mean, this would have been three, I'd say probably about three years ago. I'd say they were all around my, oh, no, not my age, but my daughter's age. They'd probably all have been in their 50s. We're really worried about the effect that the mobile phone and the gadgets that apparently most children have now, that they play with all the time from the age of two onwards, worried about the effect it would have on the development both the physical development and the intellectual development of the human mind, this constant uh, change of scene on the screens and so on, and the, the lack of, you know, a sort of disciplined spell of concentration on one thing, which I remember the uh, the American woman, the child psychiatrist, she recalling what you know every parent remembers from watching toddlers. The extreme concentration with which they will build a little tower of wooden bricks and to complete their their serious concentration. And she used that as an illustration. She said that it's that sort of demand, building a tower of wooden bricks, is not made on any of these gadgets that they buy. And that apparently American children now are given these things. There's one for, from the age of two to five, there's one of these gadgets. And then from five to eight, and then from eight to twelve, graded to the different two. 
just the whole thing just makes me glad that my grandchildren are all out of that age group, well out of it by now, and that they were fortunate enough to be protected by their parents from from the whole mobile phone world. They weren't allowed to any of these gadgets since they were 16. Oh, I'm so grateful that I grew up in an era just before that. Like I've been able to to benefit from yes. it in, in the sense of working from anywhere, but be, uh, growing up in in a very small town, you know, where I couldn't imagine if your parents could track you everywhere and the things we, the adventures we had as as kids and teenagers, you know, that's right. It's not possible anymore. And it's it's not only that it's not possible; it's like they don't really look for it. Like I've visiting home, and and I can remember. Uh, seeing some some friends' kids who were quite addicted to these tablets and saying like what what are you what are you doing in the house you know like why aren't you out throwing snowballs at cars or something and well not allowed you know my mom won't my mom won't let me like yeah you, you don't ask permission for these things you just explain if you've gotten caught that's all but that, exactly. that sense of adventure just isn't there. Well, it's, it's very I, I I think those three women who were predicting that. They are going to be quite rapid and alarming changes in the actual evolution of the human brain. Yes, it's, they've seen it. Yeah, there, there's. I've I've read studies about this about how it um, taps into the addiction centers of the brain. So you're just constantly refreshing, you know, and looking for new interactions with people over superficial things. Yeah, exactly. It says a lot that these these people that invent these gadgets or these these social media um, uh, platforms they don't allow their children to use them at all. Yes, yeah. they're well aware of the addictive the addictive nature of it. And now there's some legislation being proposed in in Britain and I think in in the United States too. They're trying to do something to control the pornography on the mobile phones which is apparently so accessible to the children and having devastating effects, apparently, on them, naturally. And apparently, I mean, when people say pornography to me, <laughs> I hardly know what it means. But apparently there are two sorts. There's what they call soft porn, which as it has been described to me, sounds fairly innocent. And then hard porn, which involves physical cruelty. And there have been so many horrendous cases recently, several of them in Ireland, of teenagers actually murdering each other. And the police being able to track on their mobile phones the stuff they've been watching before they lost their minds and murdered one of their own group. It's pretty, pretty chilling stuff. Well, it's almost as if it's, um, it divorces you from the real world in the sense that... There's a a sort of decadence about it. Yeah, there's a decadence and also there's a... um, you lose all sense of, of of dealing with another real person. Like the way people interact online can be so vicious that things you would never say to somebody in, who's standing yes. in front of you. So it's it's almost as if the, the real world is, everything they're seeing is through a screen as well when they're out in the world. It's it's like a yeah, disconnection from reality and consequences. It's quite scary, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's it's a very different world. I'm really grateful that I you know, grew up in a in a time before that, so I can can at least appreciate what we've lost and <laughs> exactly. and travel, especially. I really find it's it was so different when I started out. I mean, my first journey was to Central America, and I just bought a, a one way ticket to Panama and then made my way up through the isthmus, you know, by bus. And wonderful. And my father was probably my father was worried about it, but I mean, nobody could reach me like unless I went exactly. to. A, yeah. A telecom office, and you you know you fill yeah. out a piece of paper and phone home, and and I did that once a once a month maybe to say yeah. I'm still alive. But yeah, you're you're in the place you're in. You're not like bored in a hotel room back at home on on your device. It's it's just. Uh, but this is it. Yeah, you see, you're no longer experiencing the world. You're just going out to get the same photos that everybody else had, so you can post it on Instagram or something. And this compulsion to communicate with the people back home. I, I, I mean, I first noticed this in, in, in Gaza. No, it wasn't in Gaza, it was in Israel. When, uh, it was my first evening, actually, in Israel. And I went to this sort of, the street, as usual, the cheapest hostel I could find. Um, there was this um, sort of common room for the hostelers. But it was all equipped with with little uh, computer tables where they all had their t- could take their computers out. And I really normally, you know, in a hostel in the old days the the the, the, the travellers would be communicating with each other about their recent experiences and their plans and all the rest of it. But these, I actually counted them, eight out of nine of these travellers, the, the ninth one was reading a book, but the other eight were all communicating to their back home to describe where they were, what they were doing. Uh, so instead of being in, this was in Jaffa, the hostel, instead of being in Jaffa, they were, to the extent they could, transporting themselves back to the familiar surrounds they paid money to get away from. There's a sort of craziness about the whole thing. Yeah, why go to the place? I mean... Exactly. Any of the any of the hostels I stayed in in my early travels, you you drank beer and you talked about the places you had just been, gave tips for the yes, places where someone quite. might be going. You talked about the culture and what you. I, I saw this start to change. I was in Kashgar in the far west of China around 2002, and I think I, I saw the beginnings of this change in the in the quality of travelers at that time because yes. I noticed that we were the only people drinking beer and they were all drinking soft drinks, and there was something different about the soft drink drinkers. Uh, yes. The, they weren't. They were passively yeah. traveling. They were yeah. just following what the guidebook said, rather than using it in reverse. You know. <laughs> I'd look at the map in the guidebook and and look for the places that they're not writing about and think, well, there must be something there. Exactly. Because everybody else would be in 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 the top places. That's right. Uh, something changed with the. They became non-beer drinkers and the quality, the quality of the yes. discussion and uh, yeah. the priorities completely shifted. Yeah. I noticed that that's something that um, your books at one point also shifted to become more political. 
Oh, gosh, yes. Uh, I guess around the time of the Northern Ireland book, maybe? The shift was Three Mile Island after after being through that experience and then being persuaded by my American friends in Boston to postpone writing the Peru book and write an anti-nuclear power book instead. So that's what I did. And that, and that is... That was a real crossroads in my writing life. <laughs> because ever since, I've been more political than before. Do you find that's just something that happens as you get older? You just become more concerned with... And just what I was going to say, that was exactly it would have happened anyway. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, there, there's only so many books you can write about journeys and adventures. It gets repetitive if you're... For, from your own... That's, as a writer, you know? That's like you, it. Yeah. You yep. just either keep trying to top the same thing or do the same book in different locations. But it, mm-hmm. I've noticed that with like when living in Malta, I, I was I wasn't interested in landscape and history in the past. But as living in that society and just seeing this rampant corruption take over and seeing this person who I corresponded with, you know, yes. be murdered so brutally, I just uh, I've, I've been writing about it ever since. And uh, yeah, it's a different sense of engagement with the world, I guess, and a concern for where things are going. That's it, exactly. Now, you wrote that, I think, in, in maybe it was the Ireland book where you said realism overtakes most of us in middle age. <laughs> I suppose that's a that's also a an outcome of traveling and seeing seeing what the world's like. Of course it is. That sort of naivety that yes. that we set out with doesn't remain. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the things I've really admired about your your books too. Like they they seem to be driven by the sense of Going there and seeing things for yourself—the importance of that, you know, rather than ex- rather than accepting it at second hand, going and talking to people and finding out what are things like here. That—that's it, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, as I say, if if fate ever turns you towards Ireland, you must come in my direction. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, well, perhaps next year. Next year, yeah, we'll have several beers. Yes, that sounds great. Well, I've enjoyed talking with you. And do, do, I mean that, do remember, I'd love to see you here. Oh, it would be an absolute pleasure to raise a glass with you. And good luck wherever you're off to now. Best of luck. Great, thank you, and happy birthday as well. Thank you. All right, very nice talking to you. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanmurdoch.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated.